7. As we continue in our study of this book, I'm just going to introduce something to you this morning and then we'll come back and deal with it more in depth over the next couple of weeks. But I want to deal with you about this concept of the priesthood of Melchizedek and more importantly that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now it's amazing that that much is made of Melchizedek by the writer of Hebrews because Melchizedek has a very brief uh, lifeline in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, you find Melchizedek coming on the scene in Genesis chapter 14, and he is mentioned there, and Abraham pays a tithe to him, and then he disappears. You never hear from him again until you get to Psalm 110, which Scott read just a little bit ago, where the psalmist says that you will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then you hear nothing about him again for hundreds and hundreds of years until finally you come to the book of Hebrews. And then the writer of Hebrews takes Melchizedek and literally makes his central point of this book in many ways around Melchizedek. Now you may remember that Melchizedek was first mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, and brought to the, to, to the attention of the writers, uh, that he, or the readers of the that this writer is writing to, uh, was brought to their attention back in chapter 5, where there he quoted ver, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, in, in verse 6 of chapter 5. And he, taught, he just said, he says in another passage, that is God says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But then down in verse 11, he told them, concerning him we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, this concept of the priesthood of Melchizedek is very, very important. But the writer here seems to indicate, but it's only going to be understood by those who are mature and those who desire to hear the things of God. It's not going to be understood if you're casual, if you just kind of approach the word as a, a daily Bible reading and, and getting that over with and getting on with your life. The concept of Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek is vital to understanding the sacrifice he made on the cross, is vital to understanding what we celebrated this morning in this Lord's Supper just a few minutes ago, but it's also not going to be perceived by those who are lazy, who are dull of hearing, who refused to take seriously the word of God. And so he, he, he really wanted to deal with it earlier. He said, I can't do it. I got to warn you about a few things first. Then in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he came back to them and he said, let us press on to maturity. Let, let's not to be stuck in the elementary things. Let's not just keep talking about the ABCs of Christianity, but let's press on to maturity. Let's think about the deep things. Let's think about the, the work of Christ in new and, and, and vital ways in our own life. And now in, verse, in chapter 7, he comes back to this idea of Melchizedek and has more to say about it. Now, I have in the, tech, in the bulletin, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, but I'm going to shorten that today, and we're only going to look at verses 1 through 3. I just want us to hear the basic introductory material that this writer presents to these readers, or these who are hearing this sermon. He says in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, several things I want you to see here just by way of introduction. I want you to understand that, that this, this man Melchizedek is said to be without father, mother, genealogy, neither beginning nor end of his life. That does not mean he just somehow out of nowhere, poof, came into existence. I want to assure you today that Melchizedek had a mother and he had a father. But what the writer here is saying is we have no record of that. There's nothing in the Old Testament that tells us anything about Melchizedek save what we find in Genesis chapter 14. Now just to, to refresh your memory, turn over to Genesis chapter 14 with me for a moment. This is before even Abraham had his name changed to Abraham. He's still Abram. And in verse 17 of chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, this is what is recorded there. Then after his return from the defeat of Chalomer, whatever his name is, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take a thread or a sandal, a thong, or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and, sh and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mara. Let them take their share, memory rather. So what we have here is a very brief encounter with Melchizedek. He does kind of just come on the scene without forewarning, he just does sort of appear, and he's never mentioned again until David mentions him in Psalm 110. So what we have here is a very brief biographical encounter. We do know that he was king of Salem. Most biblical scholars today believe that Salem was the earlier name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and that he was king of Salem, king of the city that, that later became the, the very heartbeat city of God. He was king of Salem, so he was in that area of Palestine that we know as, as the promised land, the, uh, uh, the holy land for today. He was the king there of that city, but he was also a priest. Now, the writer to the Hebrews has taken great pain 
in chapter 5 to show us that basically the, the priesthood of Aaron has been set aside. That in Christ there is no more need for the, the sacrifices that the priest of Aaron would offer. That those sacrifices were given on behalf of the people and even on behalf of the priest and they're no longer needed because the ultimate priest, the great high priest, the priest who doesn't offer sacrifice of other things, but who offered sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself has now come. And so the Arianic priesthood has been set aside. It is no longer necessary. It is no longer valid. Now that was difficult for these Hebrew believers to hear. Because even though they knew that Christ was Lord, and even though they had trusted in him, they still had that, that draw back to the mother religion, if you will, back to the mother faith. And they still thought that Aaron's priesthood must be important in, in the ways of God and in care of the ways of God. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you go back to the Arianic priesthood, if you go back to the Levitical priesthood, then you are turning your back on God. You're turning your back on Jesus Christ. That priesthood has been set aside for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's vital to understand. And then he says, this priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there, it's interesting that he would take such an obscure figure and say this Melchizedek was a type of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say a type, I mean it was an illustration. It was a prophecy, if you will, a prophetic picture of what was yet to come. I mean, it doesn't say in Genesis that Melchizedek was like Christ. Melchizedek pictured Christ. But in the understanding on this side of the cross, we look back and we understand that that's exactly who he was. And the writer makes that very clear. And he talks about, really, about five things that is special about the priesthood of Melchizedek that carries over for us to understand the priesthood of Christ. And I want you to see those five things briefly, and then we'll be done. First of all, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek was not a nationalized priesthood, but it was universal. If you remember the Arianic, the Levitical priesthood was a priesthood that was founded in and exclusively for Israel. It was a national priesthood. Those who were Israelites, those who were of the nation of Israel, would come to the, to the temple or come to the tabernacle, and the priests, those after the order of Aaron, would offer their sacrifices. Uh, they would offer them for the people, but only Jews came for that, or only those who had converted to Judaism. Uh, a Gentile did not dare come into the tabernacle or into the temple and, and seek to have sacrifices offered on his behalf. They would not do it because that sacrifice, was that priesthood was very, very nationalized. But the priesthood of Melchizedek is not like that. You know, when, when Aaron talked about the God he served, he talked about Yahweh, or, or as the more modern usage sometimes is, Jehovah. But Yahweh is probably the way that the Israelites thought about it. And he, was the, he is the priest of Yahweh, the priest of the God Yahweh. And Yahweh was that special, unique, and, and holy name of God used only by the Israelites. But when the writer here talks about him, and, and even when talked about in Genesis, it doesn't say he was the high priest of Yahweh or the high priest of Jehovah, but it says he was a priest of the Most 
high God. That's not Yahweh. That's not Adonai. The word used there is Alion. It's a more universal name for God. The most high God. The God who is creator of everything. The God who is over all of his universe. The God who reigns over all peoples. Not just over Israel. Not just Israel's God. But the God of the world. The God that owns it all. And Melchizedek was more universal, was more extensive than was the Aaron priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. And so the first thing we see here is that, that the writer wants us to understand that Jesus Christ has opened the door not just for Jews to come in, but opened the door for Gentiles and, and all of those who have been alienated, all of those who were separated by national birth to be brought into the kingdom of God. So it's a universal priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood was also a royal priesthood. He was not only a priest, but he was king. He was king of Salem. And so in that we see a picture of Jesus Christ, who is not only a priest offering his sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself on the cross, but he's also king. Later on in the New Testament, uh, John is going to declare him to be king of kings and lord of lords. He's not just a king, he is the king. He is the ultimate king. Melchizedek, serving in that role, is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. His priesthood was not only priestly, but it was royal. Under the Levitical priesthood, a king couldn't offer sacrifices. Do you remember a king trying to do that? Saul tried to do that, and the results were disastrous. Because God, and he thought he was doing well. He said, you know, the, the priest hasn't gotten here. We've got to go into battle. We've got to make sacrifice to God. And since there's no priest here, I'll just go ahead and do it. And God said, no, you won't. That's not the plan. That's not the way it is. And so the king trying to offer sacrifices, the king's important. The king sometimes feels more important than he really is in his own eyes. And, and the king says, I'll just go ahead and offer the sacrifice. You can't do that. But Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Jesus is a priest who satisfies God's wrath toward our sin by offering his sacrifice of himself on the cross. But he's also a king. He's royal just like Melchizedek was. Third thing we understand is Melchizedek's priesthood was righteous. It was righteous and it was of peace. We know that by the writer even interpreting it for us. He said, you know, in, in verse 2 he said, uh, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness or righteous king. And also by the fact that he is from Salem. He is king of Salem, which Salem is a word that means peace. And, and so you have Salem and him the king of Salem means he is the king of peace. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness. He rules with righteousness and in righteousness and on the basis of righteousness in everything that he does. He is a righteous king. And when he redeems us, when he justifies us, the scripture indicates that he clothes us in what? His righteousness. Not our righteousness, not self-righteousness, not what we can do, but he clothes us in his righteousness. When he clothes us in his righteousness, what does that do? It brings about peace in our life. 
It brings about peace with God. We're no longer arguing with God. We're no longer fighting with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. But when we are clothed in the king of righteousness robes, in his righteousness, then we find peace. Peace with God and the peace of God within our life. And it's important to understand that this priesthood of Jesus, like that of Melchizedek, was both righteous and it was of peace and for peace and brings peace in a life. It's vital that it be understood as the third mark of this priesthood that's so important. The fourth is, it is a priesthood that was not inherited. It was not a, it was not a priesthood by heredity. If you were a Levitical priest, you had to have been a priest by being born into the right family. In some cases, it, didn't all, it wasn't always a righteous person that became a priest. Matter of fact, if you go back and read the orders and the, the lineages in some of the Old Testament accounts, some of the priests, under our standard, under standard of, of godliness and holiness and scriptural righteousness, should never have been in that position at all. But they were there because of their lineage. They were there because it was a family right. It was inherited by them. Melchizedek shows no such lineage. We don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We know nothing about his genealogy. We don't know when he began. We don't know when he ended. We just know he appeared. Abraham was blessed by him. Abraham paid tithes to him. And then he moved on. And Abraham moved on. Or Abram moved on at that point. It was a personal priesthood. It was a it was a priesthood that was established not by man and heredity, but it was a priesthood that was established by God. We have already talked about in chapter 5 how Jesus had no right under the Levitical law, under the Mosaic law. He had no right to be a priest. He wasn't of the right family. He wasn't of the right tribe. He, he didn't have the right lineage to be a priest. But his priesthood is not a Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't matter about father and mother on this earth. It doesn't matter about genealogy. What matters is he is the eternal son of God. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has a priesthood that was given to him by God personally, not on the basis of heredity. And then finally... The writer wants us to see here that Melchizedek's priesthood and Jesus' priesthood is not a temporary priesthood, but it is an eternal priesthood. It talks about it in, ver in, chapter, in verse 3. He says, without father, etc., etc. And then at the very end it says, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. In the Levitical priesthood, a son of a priest became a priest at age 25. They were ordained, they were set aside, and they served as a priest. And they could only serve for 25 years. When they turned 50, they went into priestly retirement. Uh, I don't know if they had a pension plan. I don't know if they had Social Security. I don't know what they had. I'm sure they were taken care of. But they could no longer serve as a priest. 25 years was all they could serve, from 25 years of age to 50 years of age. And they served that 25 years, unless, of course, they died in the process. At that point, they had to turn over their priesthood, their, their priestly duties, 
to a, to a son. And, and it would keep the perpetuity uh, going, not through one man, but through a line of men. But Melchizedek's priesthood, the writer says, is like that of the Son of God. He remains a priest in perpetuity. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is never limited by time. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is not limited by lineage. Jesus Christ is a priest for all of eternity. He is a priest in perpetuity, perpetually. He will always be a priest and will always be serving in that priestly role. He served as a priest in offering that sacrifice once and for all. He doesn't offer the sacrifice again. His sacrifice is not like that of the bulls, not like that of the lambs, not like that of the tabernacle of the temple. His sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. But he still serves as a priest, according to Scripture, interceding on our behalf. Out of that passage I read out of Romans this morning during the Lord's Supper, it talks about him praying for us, him interceding on our behalf, him, if you will, applying the sacrifice over and over again to our needs. The sacrifice is once and for all, but the benefits of that sacrifice never, ever end. They are perpetual. They were, they were forever, and they will always be forever. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that this priesthood of Jesus is unique. It's unlike anything we've ever known save that one little brief mention of someone put in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis back in Abram's life to give us a picture to look at to illustrate the difference in the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, I say all that by way of introduction because to these readers, that was pretty radical. For these readers to hear him talking about Melchizedek, when, when they know that Melchizedek has really three verses in all the Old Testament, two in Genesis and one in Psalms, and now he is making such a, if you will, in our vernacular, such a big deal out of such a minor character. But he wants us to see that the, the, the priesthood of Christ, the, the work of Christ is a big deal that many people will overlook if they don't understand the work of Christ. If they don't understand by virtue of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to see that that little priest king back in Genesis exposes for us the glory of Christ's priesthood, the glory of his work and the glory of his reign. Now, now next week, we're going to see how he takes, in verses 4 through 10, takes the truth of verses 1 through 3 and, and sets out to prove it, sets out to demonstrate it. And we will look at that next week. Let's pray together. And Father, we stand before you today forgiven and cleansed and redeemed by your holiness and the holy work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, this morning we have remembered that and indeed 
pictured that in the Lord's Supper. We've held in our hand the representation of your body and the representation of your blood. And we've reflected again, Lord, on the fact that you gave yourself for us. For us who really didn't deserve it. Didn't deserve it at all. As a matter of fact, for us who deserved your condemnation and your damning, but you gave your son, his body, his blood, that we might, that we might enter into a relationship with the Most High God. And Father, we're, we're reminded and taught by the writer of this book of Hebrews that, that his priesthood is a royal priesthood. It is a perpetual priesthood. It is a universal priesthood. It is a powerful priesthood. And it's a priesthood that's changed many of our lives. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for your gift of eternal life in Christ. Now, Father, deal with our own hearts. Pray for men and women who may be here this morning who don't know you. I pray by your Holy Spirit you'll draw them to Christ. I pray, Father, that you will open their eyes and their hearts to see and believe. A, to see their need for a Savior. B, to believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only Savior that there is. Father, we sing a hymn of commitment entitled, By His Wounds. And we remember that it's your wounds on that cross that affects you, that affected and made effectual our salvation. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.